All right, welcome to Plum Creek Chapel. Sorry we're running a little bit late tonight. Nobody to blame but myself. But uh, anyway, great to be back. It's been a few weeks since we've actually met in the church auditorium because of weather and then my unexpected travel and a few other things. But great crowd here in the room tonight. And hopefully uh, those of you that are joining us by live stream didn't give up on us. Sorry again that we're starting a little bit late. Uh, but we're going to uh, do a little bit of review and a little bit of exercise. I've got the handouts still up here from last time when we had planned to do it and ran out of time. Uh, but we're going to just do some interaction together, review some of the stuff we've talked about. But as usual, I want to start with kind of some updates. Uh, two podcasts to tell you about this week. Monday, we uh, premiered the new book uh, on Stand Up for the Truth. I'm typically on there once a month. David Fiorazzo, who's been a guest in our church, a great friend of Plum Creek Chapel, and just a great man of God, did a fantastic job with the interview. And uh, so that was Monday. That's posted now at notbyworks.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for notbyworks.org. And then yesterday, I was back on Christian Underground News Network. It's our Standing Tuesday uh, podcast. And we did part two of something we had started two weeks ago, and that is called Sin, the Real Pandemic. And we talked this week about sin in the life of believers the previous time, two weeks earlier, we had talked about sin in general and the need for salvation and the penalty of sin. Uh, but anyway, that's also posted. That was just from yesterday. And then as we've mentioned, the book is officially on sale as of Monday, Spirit of the Antichrist. Now, those of you that are part of uh, our great church here at Plum Creek Chapel are part of the VIP club, so you can pick one up for free. Those of you that are listening to the podcast need to move to Denver and come to Plum Creek Chapel. Or... You can get out your credit card and purchase one at uh, spiritoftheantichrist.org. So they're in the box at the back. Feel free to pick one up. Do us a favor and do one per family if you can. Uh, we're trying to uh, uh, provide 50 copies for the church, and that does, you know, does cost something. So, But anyway, it's a, our way of saying thank you for the role that our church plays in kind of partnering with Not By Works Ministries. And, of course, the video series that we did a couple of years ago now was done right here in this uh, in this room on Sunday morning, not Wednesday night, as I recently discovered. Um, but anyway, uh, that's available. You can check it out at spiritoftheantichrist.org. Uh, All right, well, let's, uh, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and focus in on the uh, material that we have been studying in our midweek service, and that is how to study uh, the Bible. And we've been kind of systematically walking through some general principles and some grammatical principles. And some of that has been online only by live stream from my house because of weather. Some of that's been here, always much more uh, fun and interactive when we do it here because you guys ask some great questions. Um, speaking of which, if I can interject, don't forget Sunday at the 9 o'clock hour, we're dedicating the whole time to Q&A. So think bring your questions or email your questions if you're listening online i'll address them sunday about the end times what lies ahead all of the stuff we've been talking about on uh, on sunday mornings so uh we left off last time we were together talking about literary genre and since then we've kind of zeroed in on a few particular kinds of genre but just to remind you what we mean by literary genre if i can get my mouse working. It's in the same way as in English literature, we have different types of literature like novels, maybe a newspaper, uh, maybe a simple love note that someone might write, uh, a textbook for college class, 
instruction manual on how to assemble, say, a bicycle, uh, owner's manual for your car, or even back in the old days, the yellow pages. Most of you will remember that. You young ones won't. But obviously, each of these are written using English, you know, here, here in America, that is. Although I've, I've read some assembly instructions that I could swear were not written in English. But, uh, but generally speaking, it's the same language, but it's a different type of literature, right? So uh, you don't read a love note from your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend the same way you read, you know, an owner's manual or a novel, right? Uh, or a transcript from a newscast, let's say. Uh, you just you understand that they're different, and knowing what type of literature it is will uh, help you interpret it, uh, understand it better or more accurately. So, for example, if you're reading a love note, sometimes if someone's very creative, they might include a poem or some you know beautiful symbolic you know figurative type speech language. Um, you know, how many, how do, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways, right? That kind of thing. Well, if you're not aware, if you just pull that out of context and, and put it as a sentence on a separate piece of paper, you have no idea where it originated. You're not sure how to take that. Is this person, you know, what are they talking about exactly? So genre uh, is, 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 it begin when we talk about biblical genre, and let's put up the books of the Bible, which give us somewhat of an idea of what we're talking about here. Biblical genre is simply originates from an observation. We basically look at the literature, we understand the historical context, and we begin to say, oh, this is this type of literature. I want to be clear that there's not some, you know, divinely inspired code book somewhere that says, thus saith the Lord, this is how you interpret, you know, historical literature. This is how you interpret wisdom literature. This is how you interpret epistolary literature. Uh, we're not suggesting that. Um, we're just saying that it should be self-evident to anyone reading the Bible that the epistles, as you see there on the right-hand side, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, or I mean uh, the epistles, Paul's letters, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, so on, are different. They, they are laid out different on the page. They have a different purpose, a different style uh, than, say, uh, Psalms or Proverbs in the Old Testament. And so, uh, ultimately, there are some fundamental rules of interpretation that transcend any genre. You have to understand language, grammar, syntax, what's the subject, what's the verb, what's the object, those kinds of things. Words have meaning. You have to understand the flow of thought in what's being written. But it also is important and helpful to understand genre. So by way of review, we talked about how... Uh, a particular book of the Bible might employ more than one genre. So, uh, for example, uh, parable. Uh, the gospel literature, which gospel is a type of genre, includes within it a subset of parables. So it's not that the genre equals the book of the Bible. Genre is a style of literature and some books of the Bible can have multiple genres even within them. I mentioned, I think, uh, last time we had this study from the live stream, that the historical narrative in the Old Testament in Samuel, where God uh, uh, confronts through the prophet Nathan, David, for his sin with Bathsheba and uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, 
uh, Nathan used a parable. Do you remember that? About the, the little ewe lamb and the rich king and so forth. So uh, we want to be careful not to assume that, you know, all uh, historical literature, for example, is simply rote narrative explaining what's happening. Sometimes within a historical narrative, the people will uh, break out into singing. And so you'll sort of shift into poetic genre where they're singing a song. See that a lot with the children of Israel and the song of Moses and some of those things. Um, similarly, sometimes in the epistles, uh, Paul and others will quote uh, even extra biblical sources of famous uh, first century philosophers or BC philosophers. And in that sense, they're in that particular few sentences it might be we might be dealing with wisdom type of genre so let's go through any questions about genre as it relates to the, the biblical books of the bible you, you need to understand what book you're reading to be able to kind of make sure you don't make any mistakes in interpretation uh, that could have been avoided so uh, this is one of the reasons why we uh, struggle with what I called earlier in this series when we were first introducing this concept uh, with what I call bumper sticker theology or poster theology. Because you'll take a poster and you'll have a nice scene on it and then you put a verse on it. And, you know, most people don't think of the Bible in terms of a collection of 66 books written by 40 different human authors in a variety of genres. They think of it as a monolithic book. Now, theologically, it is, right? One divine author, capital A. God is the author, and that's why the continuity of Scripture is utterly supernatural in its nature. Nothing else can come close. It's in a class by itself. From Genesis to Revelation, the Holy Spirit superintended over the writers of Scripture so that what they wrote was completely without error. Um, and uh, unlike my books, I've already had a couple typos pointed out to me. Uh, normal. I mean, that's just, I'm not infallible. My infallibility has never been in question. Okay. It, it does not exist. Um, so, but God's word does. It is infallible because of a divine author, but God used those human authors to write according to their own style and personality and language choice. You know, if you have your favorite writers out there, you know, they kind of have their catchphrases and their style and their wit. And, you know, a lot of people that read particularly fiction writers just learn they can identify their writing even if they didn't know it was them that wrote it because they have a certain style same thing is true with the human side of uh, god's word but so when i say it's not monolithic i'm not impugning in any way the uh, inerrancy of scripture or the divine authorship of scripture but what i'm saying is it's you can't just take one verse out of context plop it on a bumper sticker and not at least ask the question, you know, where does this fit into the big picture? What's going on in the context? So there's context. You know, we've talked a lot about the concentric circles of context, uh, which just has to do with any genre, just knowing what was said right before it and what was said right after it and where it fits in the overall flow of thought. But there's also the context of genre, knowing is this a, simply a rote history where the writer is telling us what happened, such as the book of Acts, like we're studying on Sunday mornings? Or is this part of a extended prophecy? Um, I was on the phone with someone this week talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39 just yesterday. And, you know, it's, it was amazing to me just to 
you know, immerse myself in it again. Of course, we've studied that passage a lot through the years, but um, and just to see that, you know, one prophecy might last several pages as it's very flowery and giving details and talking about, you know, action uh, items and action points that the children of Israel were supposed to uh, to do in response to the prophecy. Uh, so context has that double idea of both the words on the page as well as the genre uh, that it is uh, representing. So any questions before we do a quick review of some of the different genres in Scripture? Anybody? All right. Man, I'm so encouraged by you all here. I'd be a little more encouraged if you'd ask some questions, but I'm very, very encouraged tonight. Yes, thank you. I knew I could count on you. So I'm wondering about the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, which means basically five books. Right. What genre would that be in? So that's its own genre, the Pentateuch. Let me turn this mic on a little bit different so it might capture some of you. So the question is about the Pentateuch, which is a Hebrew word referring to the first five books of the Bible, also called the books of Moses. So Moses was the first author of Scripture, writing five books during the wilderness wanderings of Israel from 1446 B.C. to 1406 B.C. Um, and it was at that time that God, the creator of the universe, chose to begin to unveil himself to mankind through the written word. And, of course, the first thing he began with was the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, and he tells us how mankind came to be, that God himself spoke the world into existence. Um, so that is, you know, happening some 2,400 years after creation began, you know, so we had creation, then we had 2,400 years later, the Exodus, but it, that's when God began to tell the story, and it's a genre in and of itself. So if I go back here to the books of the Bible, um, kind of like the Gospels, the five books of Moses really need to be understood in connection with each other. So you can't really understand the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph uh, from Genesis without really seeing the rest of the story, how God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, and they inhabit the land, and they are giving of the law, and some of the good kings and bad kings and those types of things. Of course, you begin to see more of that in the books of history. But um, similarly with the Gospels, they, like the books of Moses, are historical. You know, they're telling us historical events. Uh, you know, what happened with Noah, what happened with uh, Abraham and Lot, and what happened with Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob after that and Joseph so they are historical accounts, and they're 100% accurate, but they are weaved together and organized in such a way to make a broad theological point. In the case of the books of Moses, it relates to the nation of Israel, and it's sort of setting the stage for God's chosen nation. Obviously, you know, Adam wasn't a Jew, Noah wasn't a Jew, Abraham wasn't really even a Jew in that respect, but it's sort of laying the foundation and leading up to God, the calling of God's chosen nation, Israel. And then, frankly, the whole rest of the Old Testament is nationalistic in its, in its uh, focus. It's all about the national promises to Israel. People miss that, especially replacement theologians today who think that the church is the new Israel. They read back into the Old Testament and think that it's all about individual redemption and individual salvation. Certainly that's there. Uh, Abraham was individually justified when he believed God. He was declared righteous. And... Um, 
that theme of individual salvation runs from Genesis to Revelation, but the focus of the Old Testament is on Israel. Similarly, the Gospels in the New Testament are certainly historical, nothing inaccurate about them, telling us about the life and ministry of Christ, recounting with 100% accuracy events and episodes in the life of Christ. But they're not strictly speaking chronological in some cases. Uh, for example, Matthew intentionally puts the Sermon on the Mount way early in his account, even though it happened probably a year into Christ's three-and-a-half-year ministry. Uh, but that's because, like uh, the Pentateuch, the Gospel writers, each one in their own way, are uh, communicating selected events from the life and ministry of Christ in order to make a theological point. So Matthew uh, was writing to a Jewish audience predominantly uh, to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And in one of the live streams we did a few weeks ago, we talked about kind of the organizational structure of Matthew's gospel, how he parallels Israel and how Israel failed time and again through you know, prophets, priests, kings, you name it, and that yet Christ, the true Israel, the ultimate seed of Abraham, came along and uh, succeeded where, every, where Israel failed. And then, you know, the epistles come along and Paul uh, expounds upon that doctrinally and begins to explain that, yeah, you know, uh, Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham, capital S in Galatians, he tells us that. Um, so Mark wrote to a predominantly Roman audience. Uh, Luke wrote to a predominantly Gentile audience. Uh, John is a little bit different, kind of in a class by itself, but still a gospel. And 90% or so of John's material is unique to John, but he's writing to an, a broad audience, a general audience, explaining that Jesus is the only hope of salvation and that anyone who believes in him can be saved. So, yeah, that's, that's what the way I would describe the Pentateuch, probably a lot more than you wanted, but yeah. So it's to basically like prove your point. Like what? It's to make the point that you should obey God or something. Oh, the overarching point of the Pentateuch? Oh, different scholars would sort of summarize it different ways, and they're probably all right to a point. Um, I, I think the point of the Pentateuch is just to show God's hand in the birth and early beginnings of Israel and to set the stage for the coming Messiah. Obviously, early on in Genesis, you see the reference to the seed of the woman that's going to crush the head of the, uh, of the serpent, Satan. Um, and then you see, in, that's in Genesis 3, and then in Genesis 6, you see, once again, Satan trying to uh, pervert the gene pool and somehow put a, uh, an end to the godly uh, line. And so there's, there's some overarching spiritual battle stuff that's going on, but it leads up to and is really focused on Israel. So somebody else, yeah? Who mentioned that Abraham wasn't a Jew? surprise yeah. who would be the first jew then jacob or israel jacob israel exactly so jacob's name was changed to israel right. so the question was in case you couldn't hear it on the uh recording who if abraham wasn't a jew uh he's referred to as the father of israel right, right. because he's the you know father the grandfather of jacob so but jacob is the one that sort of begins the nation and he's called Israel, his name has changed to Israel. So, Was it more of a geographical thing or uh, 
Well, it's to be a it's Jewish, a to be a Jew. No, it's a lineage. I mean, it definitely traces their line ultimately back to Abraham. But I'm just saying, Israel, Jews are Israelites, right? And Israel didn't exist until Jacob. So technically, you know. I guess I had never thought of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a distinction without a difference because they're all part of the same genealogy. And even the New Testament, Paul calls uh, Jesus the ultimate seed of Abraham. So Abraham is revered as the the first patriarch. But we just need to understand that Israel didn't exist until two generations later. Yeah, good question. All right, anybody else? So then that begs the question: What was Abraham? Right. Well, he was whatever people from where he was born were. <laughs> what was Abraham? Is the question? Yeah, yeah. Well, so that's funny that you should say that. Uh, Ken mentioned the word Palestinian in my conversation I had yesterday. Um, we talked a lot about that word with this, uh, with this listener uh, from Iowa, actually. Um, in our, uh, what do you call it, group, you know, uh, conservative, evangelical, dispensational, pre-trib, you know, people that take the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical sense, there's a whole subset, a pretty significant large subset of people that really have a hang-up about the term Palestine because, of course, the, the Jews are the rightful heirs to that land. We've talked about that in here. I talked about the significance of the Holy Land, the title deed to the land. I don't think I have it in this, these slides, but you know how the Abrahamic promise ultimately guarantees them their land. It is God's holy land, and there's no question that... Uh, it's they're, they're the rightful heirs to it. Uh, however, in human terms, people and nations rise and fall, right? And, you know, what defines a geographic region is uh, the, the map of the day, right? So today that term, Palestine, has sort of become the term to describe that region. We understand and I want everybody listening to make sure they understand that I believe this, that that is not their land, ultimately. It's going to be the land of the Messiah and the land of Israel. And it's actually going to be even broader than it's ever been before when it comes back. Genesis 15 gives us those boundaries of the kingdom someday. But that doesn't change the fact that, um, you know, it, it, it's, that is what it's called today. And if you want to communicate and use language um, that uh, people understand, you, you know, you use that language. So if you read the dispensational writers from the middle part of the 20th century, great men of faith who have all gone to be with the Lord now, like John Walver, J. Dwight Pentecost, Charles Ryrie, uh, Roy Zook, Lewis Berry Chafer before them, uh, they all referred to the Palestinian covenant as a reference to Israel's land covenant, that that land of Palestine is rightfully theirs. They used the word Palestine as a descriptive phrase, and nobody was more... Uh, pro-Israel and pro-biblical truths about the future for national Israel when, than those men of God. But ever since 1948 and the rise of the Zionist movement, and by the way, there are good aspects to the Zionist movement and bad aspects. So you need to understand that word means a, 10 different things to different people. When we speak of it, we speak of the theological Zionism of understanding that Israel is God's chosen nation, the apple of his eye, and all the things we talked about Sunday morning a couple of weeks ago about the purposes for Israel in God's plan of the ages to produce the, the Savior, for example. 
that's what we mean, sort of a theological Zionism. Uh, there's a political Zionism that, you know, I have some serious differences with. Again, I absolutely believe that God is going to bring Israel back into the land. We've read about that a lot on Sundays, Matthew 24, 31, and many other passages, Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13. Um, but right now, uh, you know, Israel is not in the land in belief. The Messiah has not come back. There hasn't been a supernatural regathering. And as Paul tells us in Romans 10, Israel has to believe the gospel first as individuals before they can nationally cry out to God and, and receive their deliverance into the kingdom. So Palestine is not uncommon for a lot of people to use, but some people in our ilk just have a hang-up. They think somehow by using the term Palestine, you are endorsing, you know, Yasser Arafat or something like that, you know. Um, and that's not the case at all. Now, I try not to use it just because I've been, you know, rebuked so many times from people getting my face after a conference. You... You must be pro-Palestine. You use the word Palestine. And I'm going, you don't know me if you think I'm pro-Palestine, first of all. And second of all, I'm making a geographic statement, right? Uh, you know, there are people in Europe, or, or let's make it even more personal. There are people in North America, namely the North Americans, the, the North American Indians, right, uh, who rather resent that 246 years ago, a bunch of Europeans come over and renamed it the United States, right? So they, they would be, you know, not happy with what happened, right? Yet they, you know, accept the fact that today when you get a map, a Rand McNally map, it's going to say the United States of America. And that's the way it's been for 246 years out of 6,000, right? So uh, we're not endorsing Palestine. We're not claiming they have a right to the land. Uh, we're not even getting into the etymology of the, of the term Palestine. It goes all the way back to Phil Philistia. Um, it's just, a, it's just a fact. I mean, people, the author gets to determine meaning. And so when the Palestinian Liberation Organization created itself and gave, gave themselves that name, you know, what, what are we going to do when we want to talk about them and talk about how bad and terroristic they are? Are we going to call them that blank liberation organization? Or are we going to call them that, that, you know, that organization over there? And No, we, we're going to use the term that they give themselves. doesn't mean we're endorsing it. doesn't mean we think they are legitimate doesn't mean we think they have a right to the land, but that's who's there now. I mean, they, they've got the Dome of the Rock built on the Temple Mount. They've got portions of, of the land solely in their possession. Uh, and they've got, uh, you know, even presidents like President Trump were open to a division of the land between them. So when it's divided between, you know, secularly speaking, between Israel and that other group, who, who's it divided with? Palestine. I mean, that, that's who they claim to be. So, so we're not endorsing it, and I just want to clarify. So I don't. I tend to shy away from it, and I've even through the years changed a lot of my charts. You know, the one we looked at a few weeks ago on Sundays that talks about the Abrahamic covenant with the uh, land, seed, and blessing promises. I used to call that the, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the uh, Davidic covenant, and the New Covenant. But now I just call it the land covenant because words change over time. And in our culture, some people just don't want to give any concession whatsoever to that term. Does that make sense? So anyway, that was a total side note. But it's funny how things come in waves. And I just had this discussion yesterday. So, But you were asking, what were you asking specifically about that region? Yeah, what nationality was Abraham? Oh, that's right, yeah. And Linda said Chaldean. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure geographically Chaldean would be there, would be part of it. Uh, you know, a lot smarter people than me that could go back and look at the geography of the early days of creation. But, um, you know, he, he, you can't, I mean, it, it'd be like saying that someone was an American. Well, that's more, that's more national than it is uh, heritage, I guess, or uh, genetics. But, um, yeah, all I'm saying is that Israel came into existence with Jacob. So the lineage, just, it's, it's one of the same. It's more a terminology. Clearly, you know, Isaac was the father of Jacob and Abraham was the father of Isaac. So was Abraham a Jew in that sense? Absolutely. But, yeah. Wow, it's the little things that I say that distract people. You don't think we listen. Uh, you listen, I know. You guys are great. Smartest group in the world right here. I love our church. Um, all right, any other questions before we review the literary genre and then we'll do a little exercise yeah well maybe one point would be that because abraham also begat ishmael and he's not israelite that might be a reason to not include him in the in the family yeah good point abraham you know had isaac and ishmael and ishmael certainly not jewish he's the uh, contradistinction to that so uh yeah i think it the, the lineage really goes back to uh jacob whose name was changed to Israel, with his 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel, of course. So, yeah. Another thing is there used to be another one of his grandchildren, which was Esau, and he, he founded Edom. Yeah, so then, of course, Jacob's, you know, had, or I mean, Isaac's sons had Jacob, had Jacob, had Jacob and Esau, and Esau, again, like Ishmael, is not in any sense Jewish. So, yeah, it's all part of that line, and it goes back to Jacob is the point. So Good stuff. All right. Um, so let's just review the different genres that we have talked about. Historical narrative is broad category where story is prominent and gives a blow-by-blow -blow historical account. Wisdom and poetry, a verse that's intended to be spoken or sung rather than read. Prophecy is strident, authoritative presentation of God's will and words, typically corrective. Uh, can also be for, you know, foretelling, not just foretelling, but foretelling, predicting something that will happen down the road. Uh, Proverbs, and we'll get into this in a little more detail but uh, down the road, but proverb is a unique genre that is, involves short, pithy statements of moral truth, reducing life to black and white categories, often addressed to youth. Apocalyptic literature, very symbolic, vivid imagery, uh, typically narrated in the first person and uh, is describing this cosmic struggle between good and evil. So very much uh, pro prophetic in its focus in terms of end times prophecy, uh, but doesn't mean you can't understand it. You know, pe people can understand symbolism. They may not understand every jot and tittle of it, but they can get the big picture. And because the book of Revelation has so much apocalyptic literature in it and language in it, a lot of people have said, oh, it's too hard to understand. No, it's not. You know, it's not. I mean, you, you, we're not called to understand every single detail of every single symbolic imagery. But you can kind of tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And if you can tell that much through the book of Revelation, you can pretty much handle the book. That, that's really what it's about. Parables, I think I talked about and gave a case study of the last time we met, which was two weeks ago. Brief oral story illustrating a moral truth, taking scenes from 
and activities from common everyday life. So remember, the word parable comes from the Greek word parabolo. It's a compound word, para, beside, balo, to throw. So it means to throw beside. So you take a everyday common experience that everyone can relate to and throw it alongside a spiritual principle to illustrate that principle. And that's what a parable is. Uh, gospel narrative, we've already talked about that. Expositional or epistolary uh, literature. Uh, carefully reasoned doctrinal argument or explanation. Well-organized, logical flow. Terms are crucial. So that's why when you read, say, one of Paul's letters or Peter or James, you, know, you look at the, the terms and how Paul uses them. He uses them often with a technical sense, especially within the same letter. Uh, and, you know, one of the rules we looked at for how to study the Bible as a whole earlier, some time ago, was that, you know, narrative literature or historical literature uh, doesn't usually teach a doctrine directly. It illustrates a doctrine that is taught explicitly in the epistles. So we want to be careful about uh, principalizing certain aspects of a, of a historical account when, unless we can show that the Bible makes that a principle somewhere else. So if you've been following along in our study in the book of Acts, um, what I've attempted to do, maybe not always successfully, and what we intend to do throughout the study, is to take these stories and look at them in their historical context, explain how they, they flow in the days of the early church, but then make some observations, and then see if there are biblical principles elsewhere that I cross-reference to usually. Like last week we talked about persecution, and I was able to point to passages in, uh, say, uh, where Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's First Timothy, uh, was it 3.12, I think? Anyway, Paul said it. I'm confident of that much. Uh, and also Jesus' words in the upper room when he said that in this world you'll have tribulation. So the narrative there in Acts 4 and 5 was living out or illustrating a principle that's taught elsewhere. And so, you know, I try to make observations, draw some principles from it, but I always try to be careful to make sure that the principles can be backed up from the truth of God as a whole, not something I'm bringing to the, bringing to the text. Um, and so, any questions about any of those? Yeah. What was the second point? I'm sorry, I missed that one. Second, second well, genre? After historical. Let's see. Wisdom or poetry. So, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, that type of stuff. Another yeah. Another question. How would you contrast a fable with a parable? A fable. Well, the, we're talking here about literary genre. I mean, I'm talking about biblical literary genre. So are there fables in Scripture? There may be. I'm not just, my brain's kind of fried today. So, like, are there examples where a fable is referred to in Scripture? I don't think so. So the, your question was, how do you differentiate a fable from what? Parable. A parable. So a fable is uh, something made up and could be very fanciful and not be rooted in reality, like a 15-foot guy or a guy who falls asleep forever or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas a parable is going to take actual real-life everyday occurrences that people can relate to. They both, might, they both might intend to make a point, some type of moral moralism. Uh, so in that sense, they're similar. But a fable is... It's more fanciful and not rooted in reality.
typically. Um, but we're dealing with genre that comes up in Scripture, and obviously in Scripture we see parables. So things like the wedding feast or you know, even the one that Nathan told David where, you know, a traveler comes to town and, you know, you put him up and kill the fatted calf, that kind of thing. That's something that they would have been able to relate to. So, can we, yeah. In Ezekiel 17, it says that he's going to speak a riddle and a parable. Is that just, is a riddle just synonymous? Ezekiel 17, the reference to riddles and parables. You know, I'd have to look up that word in, in Hebrew and kind of see what the nuance of it is. Sometimes it's just repetitious. You know, you use for flowery nature, you use synonyms to be, uh, to be, you know, creative. It doesn't necessarily have to mean two separate things. Uh, 17 what? What did you say? Two. Oh, two. Um, Pose a riddle and speak a parable. Yeah, to me, my first reaction without really diving into it, Ezekiel 72 is just sort of synonymous parallelism. is saying the same thing, just using two different ways of saying it. So can you guys grab these little handouts here? I'm going to give you guys a printout of all these literary genres that we've put on the screen the last several slides, and that way you have them to refer to. But then I'm going to work through some. Uh, they're in that stack of junk somewhere. And I think it's just one sheet front and back. One sheet front and back? Yeah, they're the ones he's got there. Okay. So you've got all these literary genres in front of you if you need to refer to them. And so I'm just going to put some passages up on the screen. I'm intentionally leaving the reference off and just going to ask you to sort of take your best stab at it based on the language and what it actually says. So we'll look at this one first. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began to build the temple of the Lord. What do you think? Historical, Historical narrative, exactly. Everybody see that? That's from 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. So... First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel; those are all historical books. Yeah, pretty easy to distinguish that, don't you think? That that's a historical narrative. All right, now here's one. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty! My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Poetry. Poetry. You see how I laid it out differently on the slide, and as I've talked about before. In your Bibles, it does the same thing. So if you look at, if you have your Bibles, you should, by the way, you should always bring your Bibles if you can. Um, it's just nice to be able to have a tangible, tactile, you know, presence of the Word of God. Plus, you can write notes and underline stuff. I know I always put verses up on the screen, but it's just nice to have your Bible. And if anybody doesn't have a Bible, by the way, we're happy to provide one for you. But I think most of you all here do. But if you just open your Bible, it doesn't really even matter what version you have. I have the New King James, but just to anywhere in 1 Kings, which was this previous, where this previous verse came from, you'll notice that both uh, columns, all the columns are full justified, and it's just, it's just basically telling a story. 
But if you open it up to wisdom literature, anybody know where this verse comes from, by the way? Psalm 84. So if you open up to Psalms, it looks quite a bit different, right? Because it's, it's poetic. So it's written in couplets and stanzas and things like that. All right, so you're two for two. Gary, did you get that one too? Are you two for two? Eventually. Eventually. After we told you the answer, you got it? Good. Yeah, that's the best way. All right, here's one. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of the Acacias. Prophecy, good. Now, did anybody start to think this might be apocalyptic? Yeah, it it's not. But because apocalyptic is symbolic and this has a lot of figures of speech in it, I could see how you might think, I wonder if that's apocalyptic. But the best way to identify apocalyptic is if you have to wonder if it's apocalyptic, like it might be, it's not. Apocalyptic is like going to jump off the page at you in terms of its wild imagery, like bizarre, like a dream that you had or something. Not only that, but also it, apocalyptic literature is generally speaking of end times, cosmic struggle type stuff. Um, now this is end times. By the way, this is from Joel 3, Joel 3.18. So yes, prophetic. Uh, and this is end times too, talking about when the new covenant is inaugurated and the kingdom comes and it's all all is made right. But it's not it's not apocalyptic in its uh, style. Okay, here's one. Yes. Oh, I'm sure we do. Historically. Yeah. If you uh, it might even have, if you have a study Bible, it might even say, but I don't. So you've stumped me twice tonight. That's your limit. Three, a third t time you stump me, and you're, we're going to have to ask you to. Uh... I'm just following Jeffrey's lead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. We don't need two Jeffreys. But anyway. Um... He's no Jeffrey. How's your finger, by the way? Good. Is it still wrapped up? Yeah, but I can take it off if I want to. Good. That's the way I can, too. Yeah. If I need to type. Yeah. Just don't tell Wendy. When she comes down in my basement office, I quickly put it on. <laughs> she won't know. All right. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus uh, for you. Uh, what? Proverbs. No. Epistolary or exposition. Yeah. So this is from 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's letter. Um, and... So one, one of the clues that it's an expository you know, a letter uh, from the New Testament is it tends to speak in commands. Now, not all, obviously not every verse in Paul's letters or the other epistles is a command, but it's a lot of them. If you did a search for the imperatives in Greek, you're going to see a ton of them in the epistles, you know. Um, and so he's just challenging the church in the context of the Thessalonian believers to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks, and so forth. So definitely doctrinal, kind of telling us how to live. So you could see how this would be easy to preach and teach from, right? You know, it's a, it's a hey, rejoice always. In other words, we should always, you know, be joyful and even in the midst of suffering and so forth. So then you can go to James 1. Uh, uh, 
count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And the passage we looked at Sunday in 1 Peter 4, you know, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is just to test you, but rejoice because you're partakers of Christ's suffering. So um, doctrinal passages are pretty easy to apply quickly. Um, you know, it's not as easy to apply something like this, the, you know, the first one we looked at. How do I apply that? Now, all Scripture is profitable. We talked about this going way back. Had a great, invigorating discussion. I think it even spanned two weeks early on in this series. Um, all Scripture is profitable uh, and useful, and and the Spirit of God can use it, and the Spirit of God can take any passage and get, you know apply it to our lives and convict us in some way or another. But just on its face, this is more informational than it is you know, applicational, right? So to draw the applications from something like this, it would have to be sort of once removed. It would be because God's word promises that or says that this is going to happen, you know, we know that God has his hand on the life of Israel. That would be an application because we see here that he's, you know, um, beginning to build the temple and that's part of God's plan. We could draw an application that God uh, has a future, for this temple, uh, especially if we looked at the surrounding context. So there, you, you can apply all of Scripture, but boy, you know, uh, epistolary or expositional, the same thing. Uh, exposition just means explanatory. Uh, it's like a direct hit, right? It's like, okay, I, I understand. There's no wiggle room. So, all right. Here we go. How many of you are four for four? Good. We're gonna we're gonna give uh, a prize at the end for everyone who gets a perfect score. Yes. I mean, you've gotten all four of them right so far. <laughs> Welcome back. If you don't, yeah. was it your finger that got hit, or? <laughs> I love it. All right. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Uh, then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Did someone say prophecy? No, not apocalyptic, uh, but definitely prophetic. This is from Daniel 11, and it's in the portion that's talking about in Daniel's day, and then the latter part of chapter 11 goes on to talk about end time stuff, but it's still talking about a future war from Daniel's time frame. Uh, and it wouldn't be apocalyptic just because we don't see anything really, uh, you know, bizarre. <laughs> right, no big wheels spinning or ten-headed beasts with certain amount of horns and stuff like that, you know. All right. Now, here's an interesting one. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. Now, this goes back to your question, because in, in biblical genre, this would be considered parable. It's actually in the book of Judges, chapter 9. But when I was trying to differentiate fables from parables, I talked about parables being everyday occurrences. Obviously, it's not an everyday occurrence for trees to anoint a king. Um, so my my definition was a little bit 
uh, incomplete. Um, but I just I've never heard of a genre in Scripture called fables. But uh, by that definition, this would resemble more of a fable. But it's still a moralism. It's making a illustrating something with a story, and in that sense, it's a parable. So, what did we say? Parable. How do we strictly define parable? Let me find it. Brief oral story illustrating a moral truth presents scenes and activities common in everyday life. So maybe it's one or the other. You know? Yeah. How would you define, like, okay, like a chariot of fire, which is actually a true thing that yeah. sounds apocalyptic? Well, I think you answered the question. How would you, you know, deal with like chariots of fire which sound apocalyptic but it was a true thing well i think it would depend on the context it might not be you know apocalyptic like when elijah went off in a chariot right that sounds pretty bizarre though right yeah wow yeah but it's not cosmic struggle between good god and satan and end times you know climactic stuff it's just a it's a it's vivid imagery, yeah, but it's not, you know, remember what we said about apocalyptic, oh, it's right here, uh, uh, portrays the cosmic struggle between good and evil. Yeah, so, um, and then I think also, you know, sometimes it's, you know, a literal amazing thing, it doesn't mean it's symbolic, like when Elijah, I mean, when, uh, yeah, Elijah went into the cave, and got you know there was the fire and the wind and the earthquake. I mean those are big things, but they were literal. They literally happened, and God wasn't in those things. Then God spoke in a still small voice. So. Is there any literal aspect to apocalyptic? Well, is there? The question is: Is there any literal aspect to apocalyptic? So, let's step back and define our terms again. So. The opposite of literal interpretation is allegorical, right. not figurative. Right, right. So literal something can be understood literally that uses figurative language. So if I said, you know, you're driving me up a wall. I'm looking at the wall, not you. Uh, no, um, you're driving me up a wall. That is a figure of speech, but you understand literally what I mean, right? So, uh, so if, so what was your question again? Yeah, so all of, all of Scripture can be taken literal. The overarching uh, definition or, or methodology that we're using here is called the LGH method, right? The literal, grammatical, historical. So we're suggesting that everything, including apocalyptic literature, you're asking, what does this mean? Not, what do I get to determine that it means? I'm not imagining fanciful things in my head and bringing them to the text. I'm saying, what did the author of scripture when the quill hit the sheepskin intend to communicate what is that literal meaning that he's using symbolism to communicate is not uncommon we all do that right especially these days right you know when you use an emoticon that has a yellow face with two eyes and tears coming out of it and a big smile and you send that to someone what does that mean you're laughing right it was funny it's kind of the new lol right um and uh, by the way, my daughter sent me something today because early on when this, all this fancy new gizmos were coming out with texting and emoticons and, you know, uh, 
you know, letters, what do you call those, abbreviations or whatever. I, I knew that LOL meant it was a way to say you think it's funny, but I didn't really at first, under, this was a long time ago, by the way, like years ago. I uh, didn't really know what it meant, and so I would say LOL out loud. And so now every time I say LOL, my daughter texts me back, out loud? <laughs> so uh, anyway, but yeah, that's symbol, right? It's an emoticon. It's a symbol, but we understand the literal meaning. They certainly wouldn't send that, and what they mean is, you know, I'm you know, sad or I'm angry. There's other emoticons for that. So think of apocalyptic literature in that way. It's highly, you know, vivid and, you know, all of this stuff, but it's still intending to communicate a literal meaning. What is that literal meaning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in the pseudepigraphal writings, uh, which are the typically, you know, between the Old and New Testament, and also some in the first century, uh, written under uh, fake names, uh, pseudepigraphal. That's what that means, uh, and they're not inspired by God, not part of Scripture. But yeah, they have a lot of fables in them. That's a good point. Yeah, but James, uh, I think James refers to it in uh, second chapter. He's talking about the people who are turned uh, turned against Christ, against the gospel. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. I, in the New Testament, we do see the term fable, but it's always in contrast to the truth of God's word. That's where I was going in terms of when I said, "Do we see fable in Scripture?" I don't know that. I've ever heard a type of biblical literature characterized as fable. It's always parable, uh, parabolic, you know. But certainly the Bible uses the term fable. That's a good point. But it's in a negative context, right? So, Okay, a couple more here. Let's see, where did we leave off? Here's one. He who works his land will have abundant food, but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Proverb, yeah. Proverbs are often very easy to identify because it's either, it's usually going to be two lines. They're t- typically done in couplets, and it's either synonymous or antithetical. And the antithetical ones are you know have but in the second line, and the synonymous have and. So in this case, the first line makes the statement. The second line basically communicates the same truth, but from a negative perspective. So he who works the land has abundant food, but who chases fantasies, won't have abundant food, lacks judgment. Right? And the reason it's important to understand that, and we'll, we're going to probably spend some time on Proverbs, I love Proverbs, um, is that if you just take that second line out of context, you know, he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. Um, that may be true, and we could probably find other Proverbs that talk about that, but it's coupled with the concept of laziness and uh, not preparing and ultimately starving. So it's talking about lacks judgment about preparation and the daily chores of life, not just general lack of judgment in all things. You see what I'm saying? So you kind of need to you know, understand the context there of a problem. Now, as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl, and all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. 
Well, that's apocalyptic, yeah. Now, if you were, this is from Ezekiel, which has quite a bit of apocalyptic passages. If you were to look at it in the context, you'd begin to see that this is talking about a big struggle and a big ultimate good versus bad type of thing. Uh, here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Poetry. Poetry. Anybody know where that's from? I bet we do. Psalm 19, very good, verse 1. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. Apocalyptic, yeah. I mean, you don't, I mean, the abyss, and you know, that's, that's a pretty global concept. Uh, by the way, this is from Revelation 11. Who's the beast? <laughs> I don't know. What was it? I can show you. <laughs> it, was about, it was about the, you were supposed to read how God is amazing and grand. Oh, yeah, where they put the wrong verse on the screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I felt, I felt so bad for Jeff. So for those of you that weren't here, the... We somehow had the wrong verse on the screen, and Jeff is doing our scripturing, and this verse comes up, and he's kind of like a deer in the headlights. But you did extremely well. I, I, I felt, I felt badly for you, but not badly enough that I didn't laugh inside, that and, and was thankful that I was back there and you were up here. But yeah, I remember that. Uh, but yeah, so this, who's the beast? No. No. The Antichrist. The beast in Revelation is just another name for the Antichrist. So that's John's name for the Antichrist. Now in his letters he calls him the Antichrist, but in his book of Revelation he calls him the beast. The false prophet is his sort of sidekick. So you hear the beast and the false prophet. You're talking about uh, the Antichrist and his second in command. The Satan is, uh, and by the way, there's sometimes the false prophet can be called the beast. I think it's in 13, but there's two beasts and they're clearly different people uh satan in, in the book of revelation is the, is the dragon um the accuser those kind of things so all right so does that kind of help a little bit do you have a question or comment i was going to say it was revelation 9 1 through 12 that was the whole passage yeah we read that much huh oh boy <laughs> that was something yeah so uh, I know you want to do this, but going back to fables, so I looked in Second uh, Peter, yeah, one sixteen. Second Peter one sixteen. Yeah, it, is, and it, 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 it looks like to me that in, those, in that verse one sixteen and seventeen, one sixteen and seventeen, that he's making a clear distinction between what's in the Bible and a fable. Yeah. You see that a lot, and that's what we said, that fable is always in a negative context. So Second Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And then he goes on, of course, in that famous passage to talk about how knowing this, that the no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, meaning private origination, uh, but for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, that's that's a great passage that clearly in context just, uh, contrasts fables from 
the in inerrant, infallible truth of God's Word. All right, well, great job tonight. Uh, we'll stop there because we're a little over time. Um, I gave back seven minutes since we started about seven minutes late. Uh, but anyway, yeah, any final closing thoughts or questions? Glad to have Jeffrey back. Yeah, glad to have Jeffrey back, of Let's course. See. All right, God bless. We'll see you guys. Uh, see you guys on Sunday.